Thank you all of you for just uh, gathering this morning uh, for the purpose of worship, study the Word and prayer. We all encouraged um, by the, just the great ministries that are being, uh, that God is doing in our midst, ministry to the children, junior high students, and even the moms. Well, our study this morning is from Matthew 26, 36 through 46. Every year, one of my major dilemmas uh, is not what to buy for my wife and children. It is a dilemma, but it's not a major one. Uh, it, it is also not what I want to uh, get for Christmas. You know, I could tell my wife what I want and take her to Best Buy and point it out for her and even give her a coupon to save money for our household. That's not one of my major dilemmas as well. One of my major um, dilemmas in every year during Christmas time is what passage to preach from. What subject, what topic, and particularly what passage of scripture um, we should study either on Christmas Eve or on Christmas Day as this year. On this special Christmas Lord's Day, I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the 26th chapter of Matthew's Gospel. And I chose this passage because Matthew 26, 27, and 28 are very near and dear to my heart. They are very special to my life and my ministry. God has used this section of the Scriptures to mold me into the man that I am, the husband, the pastor, the Christian that I am. A lot of it can be owed to these three chapters. If you've been at our church for a few years, you've heard uh, my sermon on Peter's pride from Matthew 26 many times. And our study in Peter's pride, and it's actually coming up in John 18. <clears throat> God has used that study to uh, help me to pursue humility in my own life and ministry. You also have heard numerous times a sermon on Matthew 27 on... Uh, Matthew 26, on how Jesus died for God. We won't get into that today, but how Jesus didn't die motivated by His love for us. But His motivation, His supreme motivation in going to the cross was His love for the Father. Hence, Jesus died for God. Also, Matthew 27, the miracles of God surrounding the death of Christ um, has been a tremendous sermon that's impacted my heart and many of you as well. And Matthew 28, to close it out for us, Christ gave the disciples the great commission, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And they turned around and they planted churches. They didn't each go and disciple 12 men. They went and planted churches throughout the world. Hence our commitment as a church, to plant churches throughout the world, in the Czech Republic, in Malaysia, and possibly China and North Korea? That is our prayer. Why? It's because of Matthew 28. So this section is always close to my heart, and in thinking about what to study with all of you this morning, um, my heart is pressed to, to study Matthew 26, verses 36 through 46, our Lord's prayers in the Garden of Gethsemane. Today's passage is, I believe, uh, significant, it's key to understand the life of Christ. It's, it's key. Um, a key event. I believe if anyone wants to understand the life of Christ, he must understand this crisis event in our Lord's life and ministry. You understand Matthew 26, 36-46, and you will have gained great, great insight into the life of Christ. I hope that you will think deeply and seriously about this passage, not this morning, but for the rest of the week. As we close out this year, 2005, today is not only Christmas Day, but it is the last Lord's Day, last Sunday of 2005. And it is my prayer that this passage will be upon your hearts as we close out this year. As... Uh, as Christians, we love to focus on His birth, uh, His sinless life, uh, like to look at the cross, and, and especially the resurrection. But we tend to overlook Gethsemane. 
we tend to overlook Gethsemane. This valley between the two mountains of his life, his death and resurrection, um, it warrants our heartfelt study. Uh, commentators have said, this is the valley of the shadow of death for Christ. This is his um, darkest hour. This is the darkness before the light of his resurrection. The account of the Lord's agony in the garden is very important in that it reveals the unimaginable intensity of the suffering that our Lord endured. It reveals to us the depth of God's love for us and the depth of Jesus' love for the Father. So on this day where we gather to celebrate the birth of Christ, I want to direct your thoughts to the agony He experienced 33 years after His birth. I really think it's appropriate for us to study this passage on Christmas Day because on the day of His birth, three wise men from Orient land came and worshipped Him and gave Him three gifts. And Derek quoted that verse for us this morning. He gave, these wise men gave Christ gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Gold points to His royal authority. Frankincense points to his role as a priest, and myrrh points to his cruel death. You know, for any other boy, uh, any other birth, it would be a most inappropriate gift. You know, for a baby shower, or uh, when you visit a, a hospital and uh, parents just had a, had, a, had a child, to bring myrrh, <clears throat> it's like bringing a, uh, you know, black clothing. It's bringing uh, flowers of mourning. It's bringing uh, something that was unthinkable, but most appropriate because the wise men knew by the revelation of God that this Jesus will die a cruel death on behalf of man's sins. It was a gift predicting the agony of his death by which we would be saved. I want you to consider that the Magi's gift of more pointed to his death and in a, in a way pointed to his sorrow, pointed to the agony of the cross. It points to the fact that Christ himself will suffer greatly and die on our behalf. This was prophesied from the beginning in Genesis 3.15 when sin first entered the world um, God gave the Proto-Evangelion, the first gospel. And the gospel declared there says, You shall bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. God is talking about the promised Messiah. He will be victorious over the serpent, but the serpent will bruise the heel of Christ. He will inflict pain, inflict agony and sorrow upon the promised Messiah. That theme has been repeated throughout the Old Testament. Psalm 22, where David says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? A band of evil men have encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. My heart melts like wax. They divide my garments. They gamble for my clothes. Who is David talking about? He's talking about the promised Messiah. What about Isaiah 53, the suffering servant? One whom is, whom is familiar with sorrow, he also, the prophet Isaiah, is talking about the Messiah. And here we are again on the birth of Christ. The three magi bring myrrh, pointing to that this Jesus, this Savior, will be a man of sorrows, familiar with suffering, would suffer greatly in his life and in his death. You know, that's one of the titles of Christ, is it not? A man of sorrows. That's one of his names. You know, one of the songs that I love to sing is, uh, Jesus, you're the sweetest name of all. Jesus, you always hear me when I call. Jesus, you lift me up each time I fall. You're the sweetest, sweetest name of all. Name Jesus is sweet to us. Because it means Yeshua. It means He is our Savior. It is the sweetest name. But Jesus had many other names and titles by which He is known to us. 
He is called in Revelation 1.8, He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Hebrews 12.2, He is the author and perfecter of our faith. How about Isaiah 9.6, He is the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Isaiah 7.14, He is Emmanuel, God who is with us. One of my favorites is Matthew 11.19, He is a friend of sinners. He did not come for the righteous, He came for the sinners. Ephesians 5.23, the head of the church. John 1.29, the Lamb of God. John 8.12, the light of the world. Revelation 5.5, another favor of mine. The lion from the tribe of Judah, pointing to a second coming. His first coming was meek and lowly, humble as a lamb. His second coming will be in His full glory. Majesty, reigning on high like a lion. But a surprising name given to us in Isaiah 53. We just talked about it. Isaiah 53.3 He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Our Lord is called a man of sorrows. That phrase is a characterization. In other words, he's a man characterized by sorrow. You know, when we have these nativity scenes and we have this baby Jesus displayed, I don't know how, how rightly that portrays our Lord. Um, it pictures Him in a wrong light because He did not come to reign and enjoy a comfortable life on earth, enjoy the splendors of His royal uh, kingship, to enjoy the pleasures of this world. Jesus was born to suffer, to endure pain, and to die. So his life, if anything, is characterized by sorrow, not by happiness. Sorrow was not just an element of his life that was evident in the last three days of his life, or last seven days of his life in Jerusalem. Sorrow characterized his life. Throughout the Gospels, there is no record of Jesus ever laughing in the Bible. But often the Gospels record the many tears and the deep sadness of Jesus. And it's understandable. Here is Jesus, the thrice holy God, pure and perfect, was thrust into a world of sin, man's flesh, thrust into a world of disgusting depravity, wickedness, hypocrisy, and vanity. He encountered firsthand the stench of man's sinfulness and caused him much pain and sorrow. He was saddened by the corrupt power of sin and death in people's lives. In Mark chapter 3, when he healed a man with a crippled hand, when he healed him on the Sabbath, the Pharisees were angry at Christ because he would dare heal a man on the Sabbath. And our, and our Lord, he was a heart searcher. He knew us in the heart of all men. Knowing their hearts, he was deeply saddened at their hypocrisy. Here is a man who had a shriveled hand for 38 years and he performs a miracle, a miracle of compassion, of love and mercy and he's these Pharisees, full of vanity and pride, full of hypocrisy, can only grumble because one of their traditions was broken. He was deeply saddened. In John 11.35, when he saw firsthand the result of sin and the death of his friend Lazarus, and he saw the, the tears and the, the mourning of Mary and Martha, Jesus, Lazarus' sisters, John 11.35 records for us that he wept. In Luke 19, as our Lord was walking down the Mount of Olives, and He came upon that hill and He saw the city of Jerusalem, Luke records for us that He openly wept over the whole city. He was a man of sorrows throughout His life. Not just here in the Garden of Gethsemane, but throughout his life, that is why Isaiah says he was a man of sorrows. 
familiar with suffering. He was stricken, despised. He was diseased, leprous. He was pierced, Christ punished. Verse 7, he was oppressed, afflicted. He was unjustly led like a lamb to the slaughter. Yet he did not open his mouth. In fact, verse 10, it was Yahweh's will to crush him. It was the Lord's will to cause him to suffer. That is why he came. He came to suffer and to die. And I believe his spiritual, experiential, emotional suffering climax here in Gethsemane. His deepest hour of sorrow, the deepest anguish of his life is experienced here in Matthew 26. Here alone with God, he wrestles with the deepest sorrow experienced by any man in the history of mankind. Though his greatest suffering was experienced on the cross, his spiritual agony, his, his emotional sorrow, the climax of it was experienced here as he made his final decision to go to the cross here in this garden. Go with me to verse 26. We will look at the prayer of Christ in four parts. The passion, the prayer, perplexity, and the persistence of Christ. Passion, prayer, perplexity, and persistence. Verse 36, Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. This is late Thursday night, a few hours before he used to be hung on the cross. First we see the passion of Christ. You, you look, up, look up passion in Webster's Dictionary and you will see the definition as the sufferings of Christ. Especially in the agony of the garden and on the cross. It is called the Passion Week. But when we talk about the Passion of Christ, it zeroes in on the two events. His agony in the garden and His agony on the cross. It is also de described as intense or overpowering emotion. The endurance of some painful infliction, suffering. Our Lord took Peter... And James and John, along with him, verse 37, a stone's throw away, he knelt on his knees, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. A dreadful yet holy time. He just began his agony right here. The Greek word is lupestai. It points to great grief and sorrow. Sense of being surrounded by anguish and heartache. The idea describes a heart full of heaviness. We find our Lord here prostrate, sweating, overwhelmed with grief and dread. In one word, the sorrow was intense. I think Job articulates this kind of pain when he lost his family, when he lost his sons and daughters, when he lost all his possessions when his body was covered with sores and boils, he said, if only my anguish could be weighed and all my misery be placed on the scales, it would surely outweigh the sand of the seas. Jesus' pain, Jesus' sorrow, was infinitely greater than what Job described in Job 6. His pain was so intense that he said, verse 38, My soul is so overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. He's so sad. His heart is so broken, so distraught. His body couldn't hang, handle it. In fact, Luke the doctor describes it in Luke 22:44 that his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. The magnitude of his grief caused Jesus' capillaries to burst, to dilate and burst. As the capillaries burst under the pressure of deep distress, blood escaped through the pores of his skin, and it mingled with his sweat 
and his body was at the point of giving out right there in the garden. He could have died because his human body was unable to take the strain of his soul. Our, our Lord is not uh, talking in hyperbolic terms here. I think He's being a literal, He's talking literally. He's specifically, actually described what is happening to His body. Therefore, Luke 22.44 tells us that God sent an angel to strengthen His body so that His body will be able to endure His sorrow. We have to ask this question. What caused our Lord such sorrow in Gethsemane? What made Him so sad? What caused His heart to break and melt within Him? Was it being betrayed by His dear friend Judas whom He loved? You know, anyone here experienced that? You know, not being hated or betrayed by an enemy. That's okay. That's expected. But to have someone near and dear to you, close to you, maybe a close friend, someone you love, care for, betray you, was that the reason for our Lord's sorrow? Or maybe the knowledge that all of the disciples would deny Him, even the leader of the disciples, Peter. Our Lord had just predicted, Peter, you will not only deny me once, you will deny me three times before the rooster crows. Was that the reason for his sorrow? Or what about the cruelty and injustice of sinful men? The physical sufferings that he will shortly endure. Is that why he was so sorrowful? The prospect of being tortured by the soldiers and the physical pain of dying on the cross? He knew that they would spit in his face. He knew they would slap him, strike him with their fists. He knew that they would flog him with a whip. Is that the source of his pain? I don't believe so. I am not convinced. I don't believe that these emotional and physical pains cause him to pray to God, Father, is there any other way? Can this cup be passed from me? I think that is absurd. Yes, I believe. He was saddened by Judas's betrayal. He was saddened by the imminent denial of all his disciples. Yes, he was saddened by uh, the, the physical pain that he would endure. But mortal men have endured similar pains. Non-Christians have endured martyrdom for their secular beliefs. Christians have suffered intense pain and, and physical punishment because of their faith, and even martyrdom for the Christian faith. We have missionaries even today, someone like Mr. Graham Stainis, who was buried alive, burned alive in his jeep with his two young sons in the mission fields of India. Was he more brave than Jesus? Was Gethsemane a moment of weakness in the life of our Lord? The, the, the apostles rejoiced to be considered worthy to suffer in the name of Christ, Acts 5.41. Were they more courageous than our Lord? Was He now, after all, when the moment of testing came, was He being cowardly here in Gethsemane? No. A thousand times, no. What caused Jesus such sorrow what caused him to go to God in this prayer is not any of these things. We find the answer in the prayer of Christ in verse 39. First we saw the passion. Now we see the prayer verse 39. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and he prayed, My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Our Lord's prayer reveals what caused Him such agony in His soul. Our Lord prays that this cup be taken from Him. 
This cup symbolized neither the physical pain of being flogged and crucified, nor the mental distress of being despised and rejected by his own people. The cup here symbolized the spiritual agony of bearing the sins of the world. In other words, the pain of enduring the divine judgment of all the sins of the whole world. The understanding of the cup is corroborated by the Old Testament usage of the Lord's cup. The Lord's cup was a regular symbol of God's holy wrath. Prophets Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel all describe this cup as a cup of God's wrath and God forcing the enemies of God, forcing them to drink this from this cup and receive the anger, wrath, and judgment of God. Jeremiah 25, 15 Take from me this cup, fill with the wine of my wrath, <clears throat> and make all the nations whom I send to you drink it. When they drink it, they will stagger and go mad because of the sword I will send among them. Jeremiah 25, 27 Drink, get drunk, and vomit, and fall to rise no more. Because of, the, of God's wrath is directed towards them. Christ said, Can this cup be taken from me? I do not want to drink from this cup of your wrath. This was the source of our Lord's sorrow. On the cross, all of our sins were laid upon Christ. And God treated Him as sin. He became sin for us. Thrice holy God, perfectly righteous, tender heart, loving the Father, lived to, to please Him in every way. Yet on the cross, He became sin for us. In Corinthians 5.21 He became cursed for us. Galatians 3.13 Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree and he hung on the tree on our behalf. And at the cross, God in response to him becoming sin forsook him. Forsook him on the cross, abandoned him alone. And I say this so many times. But I say it often because this truth has gripped my heart. This has formed my heart, my character, my ministry. Where every time in the Gospels, our Lord called God, my Father, my Father, the Father. But on the cross, He did not say Father. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The greatest thing our Lord dreaded was to be separated from the Father. But He drank this cup, went to the cross, why? Because He loved the Father. Because of His love, He endured separation. He endured abandonment. You know, for the fathers here in this room, I was talking to the Father a few years ago. He was telling me how, talking about disciplining our children. He was telling me, when He disciplines His Son, His Son is the high tolerance for pain. So He spanks Him and He's like, what pains his heart is not the physical spanking. What pains his heart is the separation that he experiences because of sin. When his son sins, immediately there is that separation. And that's what he dreads the most. That's what that, that child uh, fears the most. Almost immediately the father told me, the son wants a hug. Dad, is everything okay? And do you forgive me? You know, I'm sorry, Dad, forgive me. Is everything okay? And he fears for that moment, what if my dad rejects me? What if my dad disowns me and sends me away? And when the father gives the son a hug, love is restored, and the son is happy again. Well, that was what Christ agonized over. That's why he was sorrowful in Gethsemane. He cried. He sweated drops of blood. 
because he agonized over the wrath of God, being separated from the Father whom he loved, being abandoned by the Father whom he longed to please. The agony in the garden opens a window to the greater agony on the cross. Now think about this. If to bear man's sins and God's wrath was so terrible in anticipation, if Christ, thinking about it, caused him such sorrow, what was it like in reality? If the thought of bearing man's sins and the thought of being forsaken by God caused him sorrow to the point of death, how great was that torment? That agony and grief that he experienced on the cross. This is an historical event. It actually happened. We cannot know. We cannot tell the pains he had endured on the cross. We cannot comprehend the depth of our Lord's agony. In a way, we cannot comprehend as as sinful men. Even to attempt to understand is impossible for us. The mystery is too profound for human beings to comprehend. All we can do is stand in awe, put our hands to our mouths, humble ourselves, and worship Him. The pain was so great that He prayed, My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. That's an amazing prayer. Our Lord knew the prophecies in the Old Testament. He knew the purpose of His death. In John 12, a week before the cross, He said, Shall I pray, Father, save me from this hour? He knew if He were to pray that prayer, the Father would say, Yes. You know, I love the elect, but I love you more. Come home. I will start over. Right? You know, let's abandon this earth, this world full of wicked, evil, rebellious people, Come on home and let them be destined to ruin. If he prayed that prayer, the Father would do it. But he said, shall I pray, Father, save me from this hour? No, it's for this hour I have come. Father, glorify your name, John 12. And yet here on the eve of his death, he comes a little closer to praying that prayer. And he prays, Father, is there any other way? Is it possible... For man to be saved apart from my death. And God's answer is clear. There's no other way. Man cannot be saved through works. We cannot be saved through obeying the laws of Moses. We cannot be saved by our own righteousness, through our own philosophy, through our own logic, the creation of man's religion. It is impossible to be saved apart from from the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus must die and pay the ransom and purchase us and thereby secure our salvation. There is no other way for us to have our sins forgiven. The answer is clear and Christ said, Thy will be done. Not my will, but your will be done. We've seen the passion. We've seen the prayer. And now, we go a little deeper into this valley, the perplexity of Christ. At at, at His hour of greatest need, He asks His three closest disciples, His three closest friends, Peter, James, and John, to come and pray with Him. And yes, and they are exhausted from a day full of ministry, exhausted from their sorrow as well. But they could not pray with Christ and pray for Christ. Each time He returned, Christ is perplexed. What are you guys doing? Don't you understand? I've been with you for three and a half years. And for three and a half years, I prepared you for this hour, this holy hour in Gethsemane. And you are sleeping. Our Lord could not understand the weakness of man, the utter selfishness and weakness of man. Could you not stay with me one hour and pray for me and pray with me? And here we see again, the final one, the persistence of Christ. Persistence. Verse 45. Then he returned to the disciples a third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, 
The hour is near. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. He was not like you know Saddam Hussein hiding in a spider hole, right, waiting to be captured. Our Lord was in Gethsemane. Judas knew what Gethsemane was. Lord took him there many times, and when he saw Judas approach him with temple guards, let's get up, and he walked towards Judas, walked towards his betrayer, walked towards the soldiers. Here is my hour of my humiliation, hour of my death, hour through which the Father will be glorified. Instead of waiting for his enemies to come to him, he went out to meet them head on, to fulfill the scriptures and secure our salvation. To close our time, we have, I have for you three practical and three theological applications Six closing thoughts. Three practical, three theological. First of all, Pastor Jason and I are on the same page this morning. We're tuned to the same channel. First practical application is that Jesus is the model of Christian submission. Model of Christian submission. Hebrews 5, 7 and 8. During the days of our Lord's life on earth, He offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the One who could save Him from death. But He never prayed, Father, save me from the cross. Instead, He was heard because of His reverent submission. Although He was a son, He obeyed through His sufferings. Our Lord is a model of how we are to submit to the Father, teaches us that the heart of obedience, the heart of submission, is laying aside our desires, our hopes, our wishes, and putting the will of God first and foremost in our lives. Jesus said, not my will, but your will be done. His will was not to go to the cross. But what did He do? He went to the cross. Why? Because it was the will of the Father. It teaches us that's how we are to live our Christian lives. We are to walk in His steps. It means that we lay aside what we desire in this world, what we want from life, what we want from our families, what we want from this church, what we want from our lives, and we put Christ and God's will first. That's what true obedience is. True obedience and mission is when we don't want to obey. When we don't want to submit and when we submit, that's submission. If we obey when it feels good to us, when we agree with it, when we are inclined to submission, that is not submission. That is following our will. Obeying God when it hurts. Following Christ when it costs. That is true submission. That is true obedience. There are so many situational Christians. They obey when it's comfortable. They obey when they feel like it. They obey and submit when it pleases them. And they live in Disneyland. Because that's not the real Christian life. Real Christian life is obeying against the grain of our desires. And our Lord models it. Secondly, we see the devastating consequences of spiritual dullness, of spiritual dullness, of not being spiritual alert. Man, Peter, James, and John had the opportunity of a lifetime to help Jesus, to encourage Him, to toil and labor in prayer with Him and for Him. And yet, what kept them from this great ministry, great service, it was a mundane thing of being tired, being sleepy, being self-centered, being selfish. This tells us how the mundane things of the world will keep us from obedience. It's not 
We ought not fear the great calamitous temptations of this world. What ought to cause us to fear is the mundane things. The cares and worries of life. Being busy. Civilian affairs. Simple things like hobbies, entertainment. Having wrong priorities in life and basic things of life. Third application, practical is, teaches us the arena of spiritual warfare. You know, spiritual warfare is not in the world against, you know, it's not against Hollywood. It's not against, you know, bad songs and, you know, the the left-wing, atheistic, secular, humanistic agenda. That's not the warfare. Warfare is not against communism or socialism. Not against the liberal theologians who deny the resurrection of Christ. Spiritual warfare is not against the demons. Spiritual warfare is here in our hearts. Right here. Right? That's where the battle is. That's where Christ wages war. Follow my desires or follow God's will. And that was his agony. That was his sorrow. And that's where we fight our spiritual war. Am I going to live my life worshipping myself and doing what I want to do? Living to please myself? Or will I live my life? Being honest, these are my desires. These are my selfish thoughts. But what is non-negotiable for me is God's will. Uh, These applications are considerable should be sufficient for most passages of Scripture, but the absolute profundity of this passage require us to draw just three theological conclusions, three more conclusions, applications from this passage. First conclusion is, this passage teaches us our sins must be extremely horrible. Our sins must be extremely wicked. Our Lord's agony and the manner of His death reveals the gravity of our sins. Why didn't Jesus die by being thrown off a cliff? Why not being stoned to death? Why not just beheading? Why wasn't He hanged, right? With a noose. Why did He have to endure such a physically awful cruel, you know, abhorring death on the cross. Why the instrument of the cross? To tell us the ugliness of our sins. That's how wicked our sins are. That's how disgusting. That's how God sees our sins. That's the price that must be paid because the awfulness of our sins. Who put Christ on the cross? The Pharisees, Sadducees, Sanhedrin, the Roman soldiers, Pontius Pilate. Ultimately, we put Christ on the cross. Our sins. Your sins. My sins. And the cross tells us our sins are not just mistakes. You know, we're not just imperfect people. You know, who we make mistakes and God will understand. You know, He's a nice God. He's a positive God. You know, the cross uh, deals a death blow to all these absurd ideas about our sins. The cross tells us that our sins are ugly in the sight of a holy God. Second conclusion is that God's love must be more wonderful beyond comprehension. Sin abounds, but grace superabounds. God could quite justly have abandoned us to our fate. He could have left us to reap the fruit of, our, of a lifetime of our sins. I mean, it's what we deserve. We made the bed, we should lie in it. He should have left us to drink this cup of His wrath, save His Son, and that would be well within His right, but He did not. God so loved the world, that He gave His only begotten Son. And He gave Him to the cross so that 
as undeserving sinners, we might receive eternal life. That's the, the measure, the height, the width, the depth of God's love for you. If your heart is not moved by such love, you have no heart. This is the reason for the season. This is the meaning of Christmas. That our God gave His only begotten Son to be born in human flesh, to die on the cross, so that our sins might be forgiven. It shows us, reveals to us, demonstrates to us God's love. Finally, His prayers in Gethsemane tells us that we can come to Christ with boldness and confidence with all of our sins, with all of our weaknesses and corruptions. Hebrews 4, 15, 16, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us therefore approach the throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace. High priests can't empathize, sympathize with our sins because of their pride. They don't know. They can't understand. But not Christ. He was tempted in every way. Therefore, He understands and sympathizes us with us and knows our weakness tells us that sin must not keep us from Christ. Sin ought to drive us to Christ. Question for all the Christians here. Are you a Christian? Are you a true believer? Ask yourself this question. Is sin keeping you from Christ today? You don't want to be bothered by Christ you don't want to have your sins exposed. You don't want to repent. You don't want to change. You don't want to give up your life. You don't want to give up yourself. Are you a Christian? If sin is keeping you from Christ this day, you don't want to repent. You don't want to give your heart to Christ. You don't want to believe. You don't want to give up your sins. You need to question whether you are a Christian. Because a Christian runs to Christ because of sin. Sin, instead of keeping him or her from Christ, sin drives that person towards Christ because he recognizes his sins as evil. He wants to have his sins washed away by Christ. He is humble and he knows and acknowledges that he is helpless to deal with his own sins and he wants to repent. He knows his life is worthless. His life is empty, meaningless without Christ. Therefore, he will gladly exchange his empty life for the full life that Christ promises. I want to ask you today, for those that are still separated from Christ because of sin, on the day commemorating the birth of Christ, would the prayer of Christ move your heart to stay? To trust in Him? To repent? To follow Christ? To hope in Him rather than in yourself for the forgiveness of your sins? If you could close your eyes and bow your head. I want to invite you to just a personal time in prayer before our God who knows all, who sees all. And would you consider the reality of the cross of Christ, the reality of your sins, and the truth that God knows. God knows you. God knows your heart. God knows your sins, your many sins. And because you are helpless, He has provided a way out for you to be saved to the cross of Christ. Would you today humble yourself and call out to Him? Would you 
humble yourself so that you might see the beauty of Christ, the loveliness of Christ, His willing death on the cross on our behalf. I'll give you a few moments to consider these truths and respond to God in humble prayer. Oh, Father, how the world wants to sanitize the stay and make it palatable, make it, uh, make it something that would be easy to accept to the world. And how the world um, has taken it hostage and made it into something that's about material things instead of Jesus Christ. Oh, Lord, of all days, we thank you for causing us, Lord, to ponder the gravity of his birth, the gravity of his life, his ministry, and his death on the cross. His coming means that we stand in sin against you. His coming means that you are omniscient, you know everything, and you know that we are without hope apart from Christ. His death on the cross means that he is the only way whereby we can be saved. And His resurrection declares that you will return one day in all your glory, power and majesty not to die again but to judge all mankind. To separate them to wheat from wheat and tares, sheep and goats, sons of darkness and sons of light. Oh Lord, we pray that you would have grace and mercy upon your people. You would open eyes today. You would melt hearts by the passion of Christ, the sufferings of Christ, His sorrows, His agony, and His love for the Father and Father's love for us would compel us, compel our hearts to be humble before Your Word and recognize our sins against You and would appeal to You with a clear conscience save us from ourselves, save us from sin, and deliver us from evil, and save us unto eternal life. Oh Lord, may this day be a day of salvation for many, and may all glory go to You. May all glory go to the cross of Christ, our, our boast, our confidence, and the source of our salvation. Lord, we uh, cherish Christ on this day and pray it all in Jesus' name.